How kind God is. He's blessed our church family in so many wonderful ways. All right, we're going to continue studying God's word together. So why don't you open your Bible to the book of Luke, chapter 18. So let me just say a word of welcome to our guests here with us this morning, whether you're here for parent commissioning or for whatever other reason. It's just a joy to have you with us, friends on live stream. Thanks for tuning in as we study God's word together. So why Luke chapter 18 when we've been in a series walking through the book of Genesis? We, we don't always follow parent commissioning with a sermon that tracks with that particular theme of God's love for children, but occasionally we do. And... Uh, just thought a couple of things. One, in light of the fact that we haven't even had a chance to do a parent commissioning in two years, this might be a great occasion for us to press pause on our existing series and talk about God's love for children. Secondly, uh, this whole morning was gonna be, I know, because parent commissioning is this way, is gonna be a wash in a sense of just the blessing of God on households. And it seems odd to talk about the blessing of God all morning long and then to turn to Genesis 3, the curse of God and the fall of mankind. Uh, it just seems like, okay, there's probably, we can come back to that. We will come back to that. But maybe this morning we'll just hang with the blessing part. So Luke 18 is where we're going to be uh, as we study God's word. If you'd follow along in the gospel of Luke chapter 18, I'm going to start reading in verse 15. People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So it's just a few verses, but there's actually a lot here. So I'm just gonna dive right in. I'm gonna give you the three points up front that we're gonna tackle along the way. Three points for us to consider what Jesus did, why Jesus did it, and why today matters. What Jesus did, why he did it, and why today matters. So beginning with number one, what Jesus did. Think about what Jesus did here with me. So the gospel writers, they're not always writing and situating their stories and parables and events in a chronological flow, which is why when you read one gospel versus another, you might pick up on a story that's located in a different place from one gospel than it is in another. For example, in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, they put this story of Jesus and the disciples shooing the parents and the kids away and Jesus saying, let the children come to me. They put that right after Jesus teaches about marriage and divorce. Luke situates it in a, in a different place. So in Luke, he places this story in the context of a number of stories in chapter 18 about conditions for entrance into the kingdom of God. So Luke puts it in a bundle of stories about the conditions for entrance in the kingdom of God. So for example, if you got your Bible open, I hope you do, look back right before our text and what happens before this? We read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And what's this parable about? Well, in that parable, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but two people go into the temple. Pharisee goes into the temple and a tax collector goes into the temple. The Pharisee is the very height and summit of moral achievement and uh, religious expertise. And the tax collector is the very bottom of the rung, is the, the immoral, is the, the dirty, the traitor. Um, and they both go into the temple and they both start praying and we get to eavesdrop. 
on what they're praying and they sound completely different because the tax collector is beating his chest and he's saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And the Pharisee, we overhear him praying and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector that dirty tax collector over there. And that's what we're hearing right before our passage. And Jesus then chimes in and says, I've told you the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Guess which one of them walked away justified? Guess which one walked away and was able to draw near to God and be accepted by him and justified by him? And he said it was the tax collector, not the one who had all of his moral report cards with him and presented them as evidence that he's entitled to grace. He said that guy walked away not justified. And then we come to our passage. And then right after our passage, you see down in your Bible, you meet the rich young ruler. And what does the rich young ruler say? He walks up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? What are the conditions for entrance? How do I get on the inside? You see what Luke has done. He's located our story here in verse 15 to 17 inside a group of stories that talk about conditions for entrance into God's kingdom. A matter of fact, really, There's a sense in which the thread that runs all the way through chapter 18, if you're taking notes, Luke 18 answers the question, who can come close to God? And the answer is, number one, the suffering, verse one through eight. This widow in the first eight verses who's crying out to the unjust judge and he's ignoring her. She can come close to God. The sinful in verse nine through 14, the tax collector who's mocked by the Pharisee. The small can come close to God. That's our text in verse 15 through 17. The children who are blocked by the disciples, they come close to God because Jesus says, invite them, tell them, come. The kingdom's for them. And then the silenced in verse 25 through 43, the blind man uh, who the crowds are telling him, be quiet, be quiet. And he cries out louder and louder and Jesus comes near to him. That's the larger story of what's happening in Luke 18, the bigger context. So back to our passage, here's what's going on. Jesus is in town. And a number of parents have heard that he's in town and they say, let's bring our kids. The savior's in town. Let's bring our children to him for a blessing. Now just understand, if you read through the gospels, everywhere Jesus went, there was buzz. There was, there was buzz because where he went, he worked miracles. And people started to realize you could bring family members with incurable diseases and Jesus would touch them and they would be made whole. You could bring, I mean, if you're, if you're a person who you knew had leprosy, nobody touched lepers. Jesus touched lepers and they were made whole. If people in your life or people you knew were overcome by evil spirits or darkness was in their life, Jesus could set them free from darkness. Not only that, they loved his teaching. They, they talked about how you've never heard anyone teach like this man teach his authority. He says things nobody else is saying. And so they said, what do we love? We love our children. Let's bring them to the master for a blessing. It says they brought them to be touched. You know, that practice of the laying on of hands, that's a, a term that's used in the Bible in various places. And it's got a long and storied history all the way into the Old Testament. So in New Testament, James chapter five, there's laying on of hands. Acts chapter nine, there's laying on of hands. All over the New Testament, but all the way deep into the Old Testament as well. So Moses laid his hands on Joshua not only just conferring a blessing, but setting him apart for special service in Numbers chapter 27. Every year on the eve of the Day of Atonement, parents would bring their children to the elders for a blessing and for prayer. 
And even when you read back in the Old Testament, you pick up this idea, it's in your notes, God's Old Testament people grasped God's love for children. God gave them instructions about how to care for their children, how to instruct their children, and how to love and nurture them in the faith, how to give them the faith and transfer hope to their children. Not only that, one of the primary metaphors of God's relationship with Israel itself is that of a parent and a child. God would say, writing through the the prophets, uh, he would say, I remember when I taught you, Ephraim, how to walk which is one of the most tender images in the Old Testament of God, as it were, you know, as parents, you remember when your kids get to that toddler age, and what do you do? You, you put your fingers down there, and their chubby hands reach up, and they grab your fingers, and you can feel how unstable they are as, as you walk them down the hall, right? And that's the picture that God says, I remember when you were that small, Ephraim, and I held my fingers out, and I taught you to walk in the earliest days. It's one of the most tender images of God in the Bible. And so here are these parents and they're saying, let's bring our children to Jesus. And the interesting thing, that's supposed to sound like a record scratch in the text, is that the disciples don't want children to come to Jesus. They don't want these parents to come to Jesus. So look, just stop there for a second and realize the gospels aren't flattering to these guys. You just think about it. I mean, if you were making up the writings of the New Testament, and you were the apostles, you were the disciples, you would write this out of the story, right? You would edit this part out because you want to do, you're going to do better PR for yourself than what actually happened back there because you don't want 2,000 years of church history to say that Jesus' disciples hate kids, right? So you're writing this out. So it even gives a sense of the ring of authenticity to the fact that this account is in here because they look terrible in this moment, right? But here's the reality is sadly, In more than one place, Jesus' disciples are standing between Jesus and a needy world. Disciples, by definition, are supposed to be the kind of people who bring people to Jesus, not those who keep people from Jesus. Just think about it for our own lives. Like the disciples, sometimes we are standing between Jesus and those in need. And that's what's going on here in the text. Actually, you see the word rebuke there. The disciples rebuked them for bringing their kids to Jesus. And that's where things get interesting because Jesus rebukes the rebukers. The disciples rebuke the parents and Jesus rebukes the disciples. If you read Mark's gospel account of this, it says that when Jesus saw what his disciples were doing, he was indignant. He was furious with the fact that his disciples were running all these people off and Jesus looked around and just saw taillights, everybody grabbing their kiddos and walking away. He says, hey, 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 where are you going? Who told you to leave? Come to me. He invites them and says, come close to me. You can imagine what they would have been saying, right? The disciples just saying, listen, you don't understand. This is not time for a photo op with your kids. Jesus has more important things to do than cuddle. He's the savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He's he's the great teacher. He works miracles. He doesn't have time to hold your dirty little kids. He's an important man. He's a busy man. You know who can come close to Jesus? It's as though the disciples' demeanor is saying this, if not their words. You know who can come close to Jesus? We can. People like us. So when your kids grow up and look like us, 
then they can come close. And what does Jesus do? He reverses it. He says, actually, you can't come close if you look, unless you look like them. Unless you become like a child, you can't come close to me. He completely reverses the script on what's going on. Jesus often featured children as examples to the rest of us. So you study through the gospel accounts and you see Jesus' tenderness toward children. Who was Jesus touching in the, in the pages of the gospels? If they weren't sick, who he's touching is a child. He's reaching out, he's gathering them up in his arms, he's wrapping his arms around them in this passage. There's a TV series called uh, The Chosen. And I think it depicts this aspect of Jesus' ministry very beautifully because there's a group of children and they're sort of on the outskirts. They've heard tell of who this man is, but they, they're afraid to come close. And Jesus, just through winsome interactions, just calls them to come near and he instructs them and he, he talks to them about God and the ways of God. And then even one of the beautiful things that they insert in there is when Jesus leaves town, the carpenter savior leaves wooden toys for the children in the area. There's, a, there's fascinating insights. You just read through the pages of the gospels and you pick up stuff about Jesus' care for children and his, the way he viewed children, the way he affirmed children. So a fascinating moment in Matthew chapter 25 is Jesus heals the blind and the lame and he does it in the temple and the chief priests saw it and they're dumbfounded by what just happened. And the text goes on to say, the children were watching as well. So the Pharisees are watching what just happened and children were watching. And here's what the children said. It says in Matthew 25, the children started shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and the scribes and leaders were indignant and they looked at Jesus and said, do you hear this? Do you hear this mess you've unleashed? Look at what these kids think just happened. And you know what Jesus does? He quotes the Old Testament. From the mouths of children and babies, I'll set up a place of praise. And then he looks at them and says, haven't you read the Old Testament? It's a dig. These children know the Old Testament may be better than you guys do. And you're trained to teach this Right? Children stand in as those favored by God. Here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. At that time, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, because this was your good pleasure. Children in the gospels, they're made to stand in for Jesus. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, whoever welcomes a little child in my name does what? Welcomes me. <laughs> he flatly identifies with the children. The children are identified with Jesus himself. Same thing in Matthew 18 where Jesus warns the Pharisees and he says, if any of you cause one of these little ones to stumble, I promise you your best option is hang a millstone around your neck and jump into the water because I'm gonna come find you. It's a warning. It's, it's Jesus saying, these, I'm protecting them. If you don't protect them, we're, we're at crossways. Love the clear directives in verse 16. There's a positive command and there's a negative command. You see it? Let them come and don't stop them. 
so that everyone knows what does Jesus want? He wants the children to come and he doesn't want anybody to stop them from coming. What Jesus did, second, why Jesus did it. So you might ask the question, why is Jesus doing this? Is this Jesus just being a good politician? I mean, everybody knows the name of the game in politics is you never miss an opportunity to kiss a baby, right? It's, it's like an unwritten rule. It's probably existed for hundreds and hundreds of years. Is that what Jesus is doing? Just, hey, I don't wanna miss an opportunity to be caught uh, hanging out with these kids, throwing these kids around, you know, smiling and all that stuff. I'm not gonna love it, but I'm gonna do it because it's gonna help their parents listen to me. <laughs> is that what's going on in the text? No, he says, bring them because the kingdom belongs to such as these. Now. That takes some unpacking, so just think about it, because we gotta think clearly about what that means and what it doesn't mean. The kingdom belongs to such as these. He's not saying little children enter the kingdom of God just by being little and being children. That's not the point. He's saying this, people who are in the kingdom of God have to be like little children. People who would enter the kingdom of God must become like little children, again, there again, they're featured as examples to the rest of us. Think about it for, for all of us in this room who aren't little kids. Everybody else in the room, what does it mean for people who aren't little children to receive the kingdom like little children? I think it means a couple of things. Number one, we must humbly receive God's rule. We must receive the kingdom like children. You see verse 17, those words, truly I tell you. So Jesus will use that phrase on a number of occasions in the gospels, truly I tell you. How many school teachers do we have here? All right, nice and high. Okay, so school teachers, I just remember, I remember being in school and I remember there were times where the teacher would write something on the board and sometimes the teacher would write something on the board and then underline it. And sometimes she'd underline it twice. And that was a way of signaling to me, you better get this, Mason. You better pay attention to what was, because there's a lot of stuff on this chalkboard, but there's only one thing on this chalkboard that's underlined twice. This is Jesus underlining it twice. He's saying, you need to listen to this, and if you miss everything else that I'm saying, you need to hear this. And what are those words? Look in your text. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And friends, this is where we discover that the message about little children is actually a message about us. All of us. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you need to get this. Truly I say to you, whoever doesn't enter the kingdom as a child will never enter it. In other words, he's saying, you miss this, you miss the kingdom of God, not the kids. You miss the kingdom of God if you don't enter it like Children, in the childlike way, that's the way to come in, you enter in the childlike way or you don't enter at all. No one will enter the kingdom of God by their bigness. Ask the Pharisee who was just dismissed from the scene unjustified a moment ago when he said, thank you God that I'm not like this other loser back here. This bro back here is just coming apart at the seams. I'm not like that, thank you that I'm not like that. And Jesus just said earlier in this text, I heard two prayers, one went away justified. And it wasn't Mr. Spiritual Cape flapping in the wind. It was Mr. coming apart at the seams. He went away justified. His childlike cry for mercy and help was heard. 
Friends, this morning, it is not your impressive achievements. It is not your accolades. It is not your spiritual disciplines. It is not your theological expertise and command of scripture. It is no accident that in this bundle of stories about who can come near to God, Luke then pivots and lets us hear Jesus predicting his death in verse 31. You see it? Then he took the 12 aside and told them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. Just so we understand, there's no getting into the kingdom apart from the death of the Son. It is the crucified Jesus who alone enables sinners to come near to God. God the Son had to die to bring you near to God. So what's that mean for us? What's that mean for you? It means leave your moral report card behind. It's not gonna help you here. Leave your accolades and your achievements at home. The kingdom of God is received by the open, empty hand of faith and faith alone. And it's a dirty hand because we haven't done anything except sin against God. In other words, the larger story of Luke 18 as a whole is saying to us, everyone who looks to Christ, the suffering, the sinner, the small, and the silenced, everyone who looks to Christ may enter the kingdom of God. Will you enter the kingdom of God this morning? Who do you identify the most with? The suffering, the sinner, the small, the silenced. We cry out to God, we make our voices heard. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. You ever think about why do children cry out and they don't seem to care who's listening or what everybody thinks? I mean, just a moment ago, when we're, we're trying to pray, we're trying to have a blessed moment and kids are just losing it all around the room and they're like, I just don't care, why? Because there's something going on in me, it doesn't feel right and I can't fix it and the whole world's gotta hear about it <laughs> right now. They, they just cry out. Children cry out, they, they do it in the middle of Walmart. It's what children do. What, what is the modern Pharisee? How do you know if you're childlike, like the children in this text, or more like the Pharisees that we saw earlier in this passage? Who are the Pharisees here this morning? I would submit to you the Pharisees here this morning are the people who think God owes us something. The people who think crying out for mercy is beneath my dignity the people who think I don't need God to hold my fingers and teach me to walk. I'm a grown person, I'm a self-made man. And Jesus says you have that thought and guess what? You'll be locked outside the kingdom when it's all over. If you wanna enter the kingdom, you come the childlike way. There's no other way to come into the kingdom except the childlike way. If we're locked outside the kingdom when God comes at the end in judgment, it'll be because we were too proud to come like children. It's the only way you can come. There are things that the Bible says, just so we can put this on balance, <laughs> there are things the Bible says about children that we're not supposed to be like. In other words, Jesus doesn't say be childish. He says be childlike. There's a big difference between being childish and being 
childlike. We're commanded to be the one, we're commanded not to be the other. The Bible isn't calling for this kind of vision of the Peter Pan Christianity, you know, where everybody is a child and 40 and 50 year olds are, are throwing food at each other. It's not that, it's not a bunch of irresponsible people who are still immature. Paul, Paul said, when I became a man, I put away childish things. So there are certain ways in which maturity insists that we set things aside that we used to cling to as children. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. He says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Ephesians chapter four has a picture of children. What are children doing in Ephesians four? They're tossed about by every wind and wave of false teaching and false doctrine. They're lightweights. They're blown around by the wind. And what does Paul say in Ephesians four? He says, don't be like children, grasp the truth so you can hold your ground when the winds start blowing. But there are features of children, get this, that are not incompatible with Christian maturity and we're told to cultivate those. That's what it means to receive the kingdom in a childlike way. So just for example, observe the receptivity of children and learn something about faith. Think with me for a moment about the receptivity of children. When you give children a gift, what do they do? They take it. <laughs> and they take it gladly, even at the earliest ages, right? It's, it's the child's first birthday, and there's a little cake right in front of him or her, and there's a number one right there in the center, and what do they do? They don't stop and think, what have I done to deserve, to deserve this? All right, they're not sort of self-reflective about the meaning of this, you know? I've been really bad today, why do I get this? They're, they're not reflective about that, but instead, what happens? Grateful exploration begins. And for some, the more cautious souls, they'll kind of just send out one chubby finger and they'll just say, oh, what, what are we gonna do? You know, what's going on here? They'll feel around. The others will just, will dive right in, right? Face first, just plow their face right into the cake. <laughs> You give a child a gift, they know how to receive gifts. How do we receive the message of the gospel like a child? Well, we don't hear the message of the gospel and say, let me work the whole thing out philosophically first. Let me make sure God can jump through all my hoops. Let me make, I'm not sure I'll permit him to do that in his world. Right? That's, that's not childlike faith. We've got some questions, right, when we hear the message of the gospel. Childlike faith doesn't say, I'm gonna have to get all of this untangled before I dive in and enjoy it. That's why the early church often called faith seeking understanding. It begins with faith and then we start exploring and untangling after, right? One of the chief metaphors for salvation in the New Testament is that it is God's gift. And who do you know that receives gifts with more joy than little children. Watch them on Christmas morning. And what do they do? <laughs> they come bounding down the stairs. What is a childlike church with childlike faith? Why can't we, every Sunday morning, when we come in to sing the great truths of our salvation in Christ, why can't we come bounding down the stairs? Joy, bubbling, effervescent goodness of God. A childlike church cries often and laughs easily and knows how to receive from God. 
A childlike church takes God at his word and believes his words implicitly. Even when we don't feel the weight of them in our own experience, we believe his words implicitly. It's what childlike means. One of my favorite authors, R.C. Sproul, he tells a story about a verse. He says, a verse that I used to love and I used to hate. And he said it was 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he said, I, I loved that verse, but also hated that verse because I couldn't experience it. And he said, I, I struggled with a guilty conscience about some things that I had done. And he said, I went to my minister as a young man and he said, he took me to this passage, not knowing that I kind of loved it and kind of hated that passage. And he said, so he read that verse and R.C. Sproul said, after he read it, I told him, I still feel guilty. And then the minister said, let me give you another verse. And R.C. says, okay. And he says, read that one. And he points at the very same verse. <laughs> and R.C. said, I just read that one. And he said, read it again. And he reads it again. And he says, well, how do you feel now? And R.C. says, I still feel guilty. And he says, here, I'll give, you, I'll give you another one. How about this one? And he points to the same verse <laughs> a third time. And R.C. said, that's when it clicked. And this was 50 or 60 years later as an older man. R.C. said, it clicked that what he was trying to do is say, R.C., how many times does God have to tell you if you confess your sins, he'll forgive you before you believe him? Will you be willing to implicitly trust the word of God, the gospel of God, over against your own experience. Read it again. Say it out loud until the truth breaks in on your heart and on your soul. What Jesus did, why he did it, and third, finally, why today matters. Why today matters. Parents, caring for your children is never wasted time just say that to you. Caring for your children is never wasted time. What our children need the most is not a perfect methodology of mom and dad with their game faces on. What they need the most is parents who point them to Christ. Fill up their hearts with love for Jesus. Little by little. We do that not just with our words. We back it up with our actions, with our lives. We back it up with our demeanor. We back it up with our attention. We back it up with our apologies, heartfelt apologies, right? We back it up by giving them structure and giving them rules and giving them age-appropriate training. I heard an author named Jen Wilkin, and she said, she said, I passed someone in our church lobby a couple years ago, and she said, this boy is two and a half maybe three years old, and he's just coming unglued. He's just had it. And she said, and I see this poor dad down on his knees in front of this two-and-a-half-year-old, three-year-old boy, and he, she says, I overhear him say, son, repentance in this moment means this. And she's like, whoa, repentance is a pretty big word right now. Why, why don't we just start with stop, right? That's... Why don't we start with sit? That's not abstract and neither is it unspiritual. We can start here. Matter of fact, when we get to repentance, we can say it's kind of like stop, right? <laughs> we can reference back to some things that they grasped earlier in life. The point is, parents, this is slow work. This is formative work. Don't measure outcomes too soon or you'll be discouraged. Don't measure outcomes too soon and get wrapped up in metrics because you might use that to crush your children. One of the ways you can prepare your child to receive Jesus and receive his kingdom is to act like Jesus. 
We'll do this imperfectly. We're gonna stumble, we're gonna fall face forward every, every week, right? But to give them grace like Jesus gives you grace. To forgive them like Jesus forgives you. And even in small ways, when your child walks into the room, do you light up? Because if you don't light up, guess what? There's a message that's coming through and the message is, apparently dad didn't want me here. Apparently mom didn't want me here. We, we sigh when they walk in and that's the message it delivers. Don't we want, on our best days, look, and we're not always on our best days, but on our best days when we're thinking, don't we want our children to hear us saying, I delight in you. You are not a chore to me. It doesn't mean that there aren't responsibilities that we'll have to sometimes attend to, but the care that we show our kids preaches to them. It preaches a theology of God. We want our care to help them want to know more of God. Those two things can actually be connected. God wants to give you, parents, power and grace in big ways and small ways to display his character, character to your children. Because when we come to God in prayer, does he sigh? No, he welcomes us. I'm so glad you're here. Cast it all on me. Cast all your cares on me, knowing I care for you. If that's our God, how can we display that in the living room, in the kitchen? He welcomes us. And second, Brooke Hills, our ministry to children is worthy of our best. You know, we don't do parent commissionings in a corner. We don't do them on some weeknight. We do them on Sunday morning. And we do them on Sunday morning because it takes a whole community to raise a child that loves Jesus and grasp the awesome news that Jesus loves them. It takes a whole community of faith. Read Psalm 78. It's taken a whole community of faith to do that for thousands of years. Parents, you need to know, please hear this. We're in this with you. What's that mean? It, it means we can't replace you. We're not going to try to replace you, but you're not alone. When you're tired, what do we want to do? We want to strengthen your hands. When you're discouraged, we want to encourage you. When you're rejoicing, we want to rejoice with you at milestones along the way or in the baptistry. We want to rejoice with you. When you're investing in your kids, we want to come alongside. We're on your team. We want to join you in pouring into your kids and filling up their hearts with love for Jesus. Listen, church, why would we stand in the way of children being brought to Jesus when we can bring our children to Jesus? It's what disciples do. We bring people to Jesus. We don't keep them from Jesus. May we be faithful, church-wide, everybody on the hook for the next generation to love Jesus and grow in him.